0: Together!
1: Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show.
0: Everything's running smoothly.
1: Yo, yo, yo! Yo! What is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this right here, it's your KC! my It was a struggle, but we made it work. What's the word? Kansas City. A happy Tuesday to the KC Morning Hoes. Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show. You know what we do. Myself and Professor Harvey K. He is a professor emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. We take back America. Reclaiming that radical, and I do indeed mean radical, history of America. And by the way, radical is not reactionary. What is happening with the Supreme Court, and really just American politics at large, this fascist movement on the Republican side of things, that's not radical. Clarence Thomas and his ilk, they are not radicals. Sam Alito, not a radical. What he is, and what they are, are reactionaries. Rightist reactionaries. And let's not get those two things twisted. All right, I'm done preaching. On the show today, Professor K, he is out. In fact, one of his daughters getting married this week. So we take it back to the beginning of this thing way back. Over a year ago now, Professor K and myself started this Taking Back America series every Tuesday. And with the 4th of July coming up, it feels appropriate that we take this thing back. Yeah, let's go back to Jump Street, the pamphlet that turned a rebellion into a revolution. And you know if we're talking the revolution, you know we're talking Tommy Payne, my favorite of the Founding Fathers, one Thomas Payne and Common Sense. We originally played this one back for you in August of 2021. I hope you dig it. Listening back to this episode today, having now lived everything since we first published this one, uh, it hits even harder. And there's a question we ask at the end. Who is our Thomas Payne? Maybe you didn't think that was you a year or so ago. Guess what? Maybe that's you. Shall we begin? Let's begin. Back in your feeds tomorrow. It is a good day to be a Kansas City, and Always because of you. Kansas City. In solidarity. I love you. We'll see ya in the morning. You
2: the KC morning show. Right. No. On January 11th, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram
0: and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77.
3: From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's
2: Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riot?
3: I am here at the American
0: Royal World Series of Barbecue.
1: Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Kansas City. Harvey K. Professor Emeritus of Democracy. Ooh, what a title. I get goosebumps just saying that, Professor. Professor over at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. My friend, I have but one question for you, one objective, if you so choose
3: to accept. My friend, are you ready for us to take back America? Absolutely. We're going to take <laughs> back America by reclaiming our radical past.
1: Your books behind you in the background take hold of our history. Your latest is called FDR on Democracy. You've got, I think, the best works on Thomas Paine. And
3: also, I saw a tweet you made a couple days ago. Are you working on something else? Uh, No, not really. I've got a book that my very first book back in 1984, 85, right in there, which has never really been out of print. It came out in a new edition in mid-90s. When I say new edition, it means like a very famous scholar named Eric Hobsbawm wrote a a forward to it, and I wrote a new preface. Well, a third publisher is going to bring out a third edition, you might say, where I've added a new, new preface to it. The title of the book is The British Marxist Historians, and it's about a group of British intellectuals who change the way history is written. Instead of paying attention to the elites, the kings and the queens, or the presidents and the generals and all of that, we now attend to history from the bottom up, working people, whether it was peasants and slaves in the past, to workers and women and others in the present. They really were tremendously important in 20th century historiography. I wrote about them. The book has always been Successful, let's put it that way. And uh, it's coming out again. I don't know when. It's going to be either in the fall or early or winter, early spring. There's some problems in the production right now. You know, the pandemic created all these kinds of problems. So
1: I'm curious when you go back and look at history, either you wrote it or someone else, do you get excited, encouraged when you get a chance to update it? Are you disappointed sometimes, I guess, based off of what you predicted in the past? How do you approach that?
3: Well, for a start, since it's a group of five intellectuals, by the way, a, a couple of them or more were very. Very prominent public figures. E.P. Thompson was the co-founder of the European nuclear disarmament movement. Eric Hobsbawm is probably the most, one of the most famous, he's passed away not too many years ago, he died in his mid-90s, one of the most famous historical writers of the 20th century. And when I look back and I read what I had to say about them, I I still feel the same way. I still admire them. But what I do wonder is, was that me writing it? Because my first book sounded more academic than I would write, today, trying to show that I really understood the historical arguments and I detailed them. And it's the kind of thing students and other scholars and a lot of other folks can appreciate, especially people on the left but i read it and i think, boy, was i was i that smart once upon a time.
1: <laughs> I'm a nerd for this stuff. I love looking back at our history and seeing how we can propel us forward. Let's, you know, let's take the lessons we learned, good and bad, all of our inclusive history, and let's go be great in the right kind of way. And that's what we're doing on this show every Tuesday, myself and Professor Harvey K, we reclaim that radical history, but you know, it's not just reclaiming. In fact, you you had to set me straight when we started the interview today. No, it's not just reclaiming something. It's taking it back. We're taking back
3: America. Yeah, and that really is the case. I mean, there are people who wrote these, and we're going to, you know, always introduce the people. But it's important that we take hold of the texts themselves, the words. Let's be put it that way. The words themselves, because it's the words that really declared and then articulated and re-articulated, proclaimed anew the promise of America, going back to the 1770s. Then, at the time of the Revolution, and we're we're going to take it all the way up to the most recent past. And on top of that, we're going to also talk a little bit about the news of the day, because I would be remiss
1: if I didn't get your thoughts and opinions and perspective on everything from the exit in Afghanistan to the infrastructure bill passed last week in the Senate. So we'll save that for the end.
3: We do our Q&A portion. But let's let's dig into common sense. Professor K, you want to do that? Let's start off once again with the fact that common sense was written by an Englishman, in fact. Thomas Paine, who was born in 1737. He would pass away 1809 here in the United States. He was already nearly middle age when he came to America, just weeks away from turning 38 when he arrived in late 1774. And he came with a pretty checkered career over in England. He had been raised by parents who were, um, it was a mixed marriage, you might say. His father was a Quaker. His mother was an Anglican. They had different understandings of religion. And let's keep in mind that 18th century England was not a very good place to be a Quaker, or for that matter, anything but a member of the Church of England. You did not have equal status with people who were members of the Church of England. That's important. Also, his, his father was an artisan. He was a staymaker, corset maker. Hey. And Payne, after several years in school, was taken out and literally apprenticed to his father. Spent several years as an apprentice, but was very unhappy doing so. He wanted to go out and have some adventure. So he ran away and he signed on as a privateer, which is not a pirate, but it may sound like a <laughs> (laughs) pirate. A privateer ship is a ship commissioned by the crown to go out and prey on enemy shipping. And then what happened is you hope to capture the ship. The ship became the property of the crown. The contents of the ship were then sold off and it was divided up amongst the crew. And he spent a year as a privateer. And he he was a welcome member of the crew, I'm sure, because he learned stay making, which basically was to make corsets with whalebone. So on board ship, he was probably assigned the task when they weren't in battle. He probably had the job of sewing up the sails you might say, after battles. Came back to England and he had a really checkered career. As I said, he spent nearly a year in London, satisfying his intellectual curiosity, going to lectures, attending conversations in coffee shops and in taverns. Only members of the Church of England with a certain status in society. It had to be a male, of course, could go to university. So for young artisans of his sort, if you had an intellectual curiosity, you were going to go to coffee shops and taverns to hear the lectures by other artisans. And he was interested in astronomy, geography. I mean, he, he was actually a very, very smart and very hungry for ideas kind of guy. He learned a great deal about what's called natural philosophy. We would call it the philosophy of science today. And he probably developed fairly sort of, you know, what we would today call progressive ideas. In those days, they would have just called it sort of nonconformist ideas. And then he set himself up because he was running out of money from his shipboard time, set himself up as a staymaker. But it was a bad time to try to make a living as a staymaker. And then to add to the tragedy of the moment, he fell in love. He and his, his beloved got married. She became pregnant and she died in childbirth. He was devastated, but he he went home to his parents' place and decided to study up to take the excise officer's exam. In other words, he was going to turn himself into a tax collector. That's what his late wife's father had done, and it would have provided a dangerous but a steady income. He passed the exam and he was assigned to patrol the coast on the eastern shores of England, which was dangerous. There were a lot of communities that made a living literally by, you know wrecking ships along the coast. Well, he was fired from doing that one time because they said he was stamping, which meant that he was not really inspecting. He was just stamping, which meant he was either lazy or taking money off- You know, under the table kind of stuff. But he must have been actually innocent because he petitioned. It took two to three years. He petitioned to be reinstated and they reinstated him, which meant that he may well have taken the fall for somebody else. Got reinstated, served next on the south coast of England, became actually a respected member of the community in the town of Lewis on the south coast, was part of something called the Headstrong Company, where they would meet a couple of times a week to drink, to eat, to dine, that is, and to discuss public affairs and politics at the White Hart Tavern. However, he became so good with words that his fellow excise officers, at least in the southern part of England, convinced him to write a petition to the Excise Commission and Parliament to go to London, that is, and demand, or at least not demand, lobby for a raise, a salary increase for the excise officers.
1: So if you don't mind me asking just real quick, I'm hearing the story about this man who up until this point seems to have everything going pretty well for him. Was this someone who had shown
3: to have, you know, some radical ideas in the past? Nothing. Nothing. That we know of. He never really became known as a public speaker. This was sort of at dinner table conversations. He was good with words. In other words, so he was never an orator, but he could write effectively. The best proof of how good he was with words is that every week they would give the book, the minutes of the meeting, they would call it, to the person who performed the best at dinner. And his name was in the book more than most people. So it must have been the case. They really admired his way with words. So he goes to London and he spends all too long in London petitioning the Excise Commission and Parliament trying to get a raise. Eventually, they not only realized he had left his post and that someone had been covering for him, but also that he was doing it illegally. And they sacked him again. This time he's finished. Now he's in his late 30s. Now, the interesting thing is the good that came of his being in London is that he met a lot of very important people, the most important of whom for his life and for history is he became good friends with a regular resident of London, Benjamin Franklin. And Franklin encouraged him to go to America. To start over in America. And he gave him a letter of introduction. And Paine sailed for America in September 1774. Arrives in November. He had a terrible voyage. He was ill most of the time. Really, at times, deathly ill. And when he comes off the boat in Philadelphia, he was brought off on a stretcher and he was taken to a boarding house. And it took a few weeks for him to recover. And he quickly set out to to discover America, which meant to walk around Philadelphia, which at that time was one square mile, a population of 30,000. But it was the most dynamic city in the American colonies, the British colonies. And he quickly fell in love with America, except for one thing, which I should make clear. The one thing that he could not believe he saw was the slave market. That stunned him. He ends up, because of the introduction from Franklin, he ends up as the editor of a magazine in Philadelphia, a new magazine, which, by the way, talk about change of career. He's now all of a sudden the editor of a magazine called the Pennsylvania Magazine, which becomes the best-selling magazine in the colonies. Sounds a lot like the Casey Morning Show, Harvey. You bet, and we'll make history. You bet. <laughs> so Payne, he wrote a lot of pieces, and in these pieces, he celebrated America. I think he felt like he had died and gone to heaven because he had been so ill, and now he was in a new world. For as far as he was concerned, he marveled at certain things. Okay, he was uh, he was horrified at the, by the slave market, but he marveled at the ethnic and religious diversity of Philadelphia. I mean, seriously. You had people from all over Europe and the Americas, number one. You had people of every faith imaginable in the Atlantic world. And he just marveled at the fact that in contrast to England, where there was, you know, religious persecution. Keep in mind, Pennsylvania was a freer colony for religion than most of the uh, most of the other colonies at the time. But he just marveled at it. And he started writing in celebration of the possibilities of America. And one of his first important pieces was also a call to end slavery in the American colonies. And in contrast to some others who would have said, okay, we end slavery and we place these Africans on ships to send them back to Africa. Payne said, no, whites have an obligation to educate these folks and afford them opportunities, maybe lands in the West. He actually said maybe lands in the West to help defend the West against Native Americans, but that's neither here nor there right now. He is quickly discovered by Benjamin Rush, who's a prominent young doctor, a radical in the Continental Congress. And Rush, and he meet regularly at a coffee shop, and Rush encourages him to write about the possibility of America separating from the British Empire. Now, this is important. Paine didn't immediately become a radical. He was astonished, and he fell in love with America. But it was Lexington and Concord on April 19th of 1775 that pushed him. He pushed him into the, the ranks of the patriots, you might say. And that's when Rush is able to persuade him to start writing what comes to be called common sense. Hey, my name's
1: Hartzell. When we come back, more from myself and Professor Harvey K. as we take back our common sense to KC Morning Show. See the pigeons
2: bless the statue Crown of stone wins no respect Showing neither fear nor favor A of stone deserves neglect Here's to Tom Paine, the hidden story Time will proclaim the rights of man Here's to Tom Paine, true England's glory Never a better born English man Never a better born English man The backs Waiting in the wings, deciding Time conspires to flood the tracks Here's to Tom Paine, the hidden story Time will proclaim the rights of man Here's to Tom Paine, true England's glory Never a better boy. Man. never a better-born Englishman. Talk about a major reason, grind the tyrants into dust. Love will be the cries of treason from home. Glass, to an unsung hero, rise up from your rags and bones, a heart of oak who showed no fear when screams and blood from hearts of stone. Here's Tom Baine, a hidden story. Time will proclaim the rights of man. Never a better born English man Here's to Tom Lane
3: I then go through the whole long story. Let's jump to January of 76 when Common Sense Appears. This is a pamphlet that it's either 1,000 or 2,000 are printed and it, they quickly sell out. And in the course of that spring, 120,000 will be sold. In the course of the revolution, possibly a half a million will be distributed. I think I said to you last time, Payne took no royalties from the pamphlet. He said all the monies should be used to buy mittens for Washington's troops. Now, what is this pamphlet that it took off? What what made it so revolutionary? Okay, for a start, Payne was really impressed by how Americans had already thrown themselves into a rebellion in the course of 1774 into seventeen. 17- a rebellion in which they were demanding that their rights as British subjects be recognized. No representation then no legislation. That Parliament should not be able to legislate on behalf of the colonies since there was no American representation representation in parliament. In Boston, it was called no taxation without representation, but it really was no legislation without representation. So Paine is astounded by how Americans have already risen up and all but thrown out completely British authority. But what he can't believe is how is it possible they still think of themselves as British fighting for the rights of Britons. And what he does in this pamphlet is he holds up a mirror, you might say, to the American colonists. And he says, look at what you've done and look at what you're capable of doing. And to, to get to the point of the argument, which shows up in a second edition of Common Sense, which comes out a few weeks after the first edition, he actually says, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. Paine is going to make the case for independence. But Paine would later make this clear. If it was only a question of independence, it was not worth pursuing. Not worth pursuing. It had to be a matter of establishing an unprecedented political order. In other words, you have to get rid of the monarchs. You've got to get rid of the aristocrats. You've got to abolish any kind of hereditary succession. And what he really argues, even though he never uses the word, he's arguing for the creation of a democratic republic. In the colonies. And he even opens Common Sense, if anybody has a copy with him, he says, the cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. He doesn't see this as a struggle for American rights. He's really saying this is a struggle for human rights. Okay, he wants to make that clear. And then he goes on, and this is interesting, makes no reference to the question of an empire or independence. He opens up with a statement, by the way, that libertarians on the right and anarchists on the left both Madly embrace, you might say. The sentence goes: Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. And they think: okay, this is great. Libertarians hate government. Anarchists hate private property and government. So they, they both right and left, you might say, embrace this. Now, I, I don't deny that Paine has really strong libertarian sentiments, but Paine is a radical small D Democrat. The problem is that conservatives and libertarians, they stop right there. They say, hey, Paine's one of ours. Society is, a, is, is good and government is bad. But that's not Paine's point. Paine's point is government as it exists is an evil it's always necessary to some extent but as it exists it has been an evil and he then goes on to explain in a philosophical way he said look imagine if you took a group of people separated from civilization in essence he's talking about a colony almost he says at first society becomes the first imperative you have to cooperate to build homes okay to agree upon a reasonable way of structuring life and he says and then he says well but in time you know in time the community is going to grow and the fact that the community grows look we're not all saints we're not all angels we have to decide are there going to be any kind of rules that are going to govern our behavior but notice what he does he doesn't say and they elect a king the imagery is absolutely gorgeous when he what he says some convenient tree will afford them a state house in other words imagine a giant tree under the tree the members of the community will gather some convenient tree will afford them a state house under the branches of which the whole colony may assemble to deliberate on public matters. What he's getting at is not only is sociability natural for humanity, but so is it's almost as if people have democratic instincts that emerge out of that sociability. So, Payne is talking to Americans not about separation or independence. He's talking to them about enabling them to see what they've already done. Because when they threw out British authority, they organized committees to regulate economic affairs and public affairs and other aspects of colonial life. And what he's showing them is, look, you've already indicated that in a way, this is a struggle, not about the rights of Britons. This is about democracy. So in essence, he's holding up a mirror to what they're doing. And in essence, he goes from there. He then goes on to take apart, utterly take apart the British government and constitution, utterly. And then he goes on to, to make a mockery of the whole idea of kings, of monarchy. You know, he says along the way, the best proof of the, mo- of the mockery that it is, is that so often we get an ass instead of a lion as a king. And then he says, added to the stupidity of monarchy is the stupidity of hereditary succession. You could end up with a five-year-old as a king. What kind of logic is there in that? And he goes over and over again through these things to show people that, think about it, you don't really have any affection for the king if you think about it. So he uses history, reason, the Bible, humor to take down the idea of monarchy, to tear apart the British government and constitution. And then he goes on from there to talk about the empire. You know, he says, "Look, people say that is England or Britain is our parent country." He says, "No parent would treat their children the way Britain is treating the American colonies right now. And he says, is this the way that we should allow ourselves to be treated? And he talks to people, fellow colonists, as if they're parents. Do you want to leave this question to your children to have to settle? And he reminds people of the violence that's already been perpetrated by the British military against Boston and certain cities in New England. And then he says, you know, Let's lastly ask ourselves, are we really English? Are we British? There are people here in the colonies from all over Europe. And he says, think about it. When two of us, I'm paraphrasing, are overseas, we see each other as Americans. So we need to recognize that we're not British. We're not British colonists. We are Americans. What he's doing is he's equating the recognition of being an American with a recognition of making the world over again. My book title is Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, the one I published in 2005, which I will say as Thomas Paine's common sense was kind of a love letter to America. My book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America is my love letter to the United States. But he says in the third part of the pamphlet, it's only a pamphlet of no more than 50 pages. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. That's what I wanted the book to be titled. But the marketing people told my editor, (laughs) He can't use that title. It's too long. Nobody will remember it. So we took what I had as the subtitle, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. We put it into the title. So I didn't get that title, but Paine literally has taught Americans to think of themselves as Americans. He's told them that they have it in their power to begin the world over again. He's shown them that humanity is sociable and has democratic instincts. He's revealed to them the absurdity of the British government, the British constitution, the English king, and the empire brings nothing but war and devastation. And then he says, but we need a plan. Maybe we're, we hesitate because we We don't know what to do. And he offers a plan. He says, look, I'm not telling you to adopt my plan, but if it helps get the conversation going, here's what I would suggest. And he lays out an idea for a constitution, which is a very democratic constitution, I can tell you. But what makes it especially important is he says constitutions are not created by governments. Governments are created by constitutions. Constitutions are created by the people. And of course, later when the Constitution is is written in 1787, it opens with we the people, which is important, not we the states. We the people, not we the colonies, as far as Paine was concerned, but the people will create the Constitution. And then he says, and this is really interesting because he's rarely included in the story of the Constitution, but he's the first one to envision it. And he makes it clear that the Constitution should guarantee certain rights. And the right that he emphasizes most of all is freedom of conscience that is freedom of religion, freedom of worship. And he says, basically, he calls up to five times for separation of church and state. What he says is the only role for religion is to make sure that people get to practice it as they please. Other than that, there is no role for government in religion. He's utterly hostile to the idea that exists in England of a state religion. And he proceeds, and he really does make a very strong argument, an idea of democracy and for an idea that the new nation should be an asylum for mankind. Now, there are things that he has left out. He left out the call for the abolition of slavery from common sense. And most people imagine he did so because he was afraid if he issued the call that the Southern colonies would never embrace the idea of the revolution because of the slaveholding. And by the way, people in the South, some of the most important slaveholders, not all of them, but some very crucial slaveholders would never forgive Payne for having called for an end of slavery as he did in that essay article he wrote on African slavery in America. So he then realizes, of course, that it's going to take not only this disabusing Americans of their affections for the king, their their attachment to Britain, their belief that you need the empire to protect them. Now he's got to persuade them that they can do it. I mean, let's face it. The British empire was the greatest empire in human history in some ways, had the strongest Navy in human history. How could the colonists ever imagine beating the British empire? Well, he persuades them by telling them, look, we've got a great coastline. We've got a lot of resources to build a Navy. He's telling them that we can do it. He captured the imagination. What he realized was that he wasn't telling them he wasn't telling them anything they they didn't know. What he was doing is he was making their sort of underlying knowledge more manifest. He was making them see by his words what they were capable of doing because look what they had already accomplished, and then he also persuaded them that they they were obliged to do it because they should not leave that moment to their children to have to pursue, and that history demanded action now, that the time was just right, and. <laughs> Washington actually was astounded at the impact of this pamphlet. He didn't know Thomas Paine. He wasn't even in Philadelphia. He was up in New England with the army. Next thing he knows, everybody is reading Common Sense. It took off like, bam, just exploded onto the scene. He actually wrote one of his lieutenants. I think it might even have been a man who was officially his secretary, but who was at that time down in Philadelphia. And he wrote to him and he said, this pamphlet Common Sense is working a wondrous change in the minds of men, his men. And what he meant by that is he had never come out in favor of independence, Washington. Here he is leading an army. And even in January and February of 1776, whenever he and his officers were having dinner, they would toast the king, even as he was fighting the king's army. And now he sees the men are persuaded to think about independence and democracy. And he, like many others, realized that this was the opportunity. It spreads like wildfire, the argument. Communities and towns and cities are sending petitions to Philadelphia to the Continental Congress to entertain the idea and consider the idea of declaring independence. So between January and July, that movement has begun. We know that in March and April and May it's being drafted and July 2nd, but it's signed you know they named July 4th as the official date, a declaration of independence appears. Now I want to go back to something. I-, I wanna make something very clear. The response to common sense was tremendous enthusiasm. It also created tremendous fear among the Tories and loyalists, those who did not want to separate, and even those who were sitting the fence. Look, the most radical figures in Congress had never come out publicly and called for independence. And here's a funny thing, and this is what they were afraid of, the elite, whether they were radical or not. John Adams bought three copies of Common Sense as soon as it appeared in Philadelphia. He didn't know who wrote it he kept one for himself and sent two up to New England to his wife, Abigail, for her to send to another person. Abigail sent John a letter and said, I am charmed by the sentiments in this pamphlet. She might even have imagined that Adams had written it. Adams writes back and he says, to make it clear, I'm not the author of this pamphlet. He actually says, it's too manly a pamphlet for me to have written, meaning it was too courageous for him to have written. And she then sends another letter. She makes it clear to John, this is where the famous line that Abigail writes, having read the pamphlet Common Sense, this call for revolution, she says, basically, I'm telling you now, you and your comrades at the Continental Congress. Remember the ladies and what's missing in a lot of people's memories is the fact that her next line is, and if you don't remember the ladies, we may have to come down to Philadelphia and make a revolution of our own. It's got a certain sexual tension and political tension in it. (laughs) Adams writes back to her and says, not you too, the greatest tribe of all. Artisans, farmers, everybody is demanding radical change. This is something that frightens the elites, even the radical elite. It's one thing to call for independence that they were eager to have someone do. They weren't calling for a democratic revolution, which is what this was spurring. So Thomas Paine, here's the thing to remember. First of all, it's a call for independence. Second of all, it's a call for the making of a democratic republic. And third, it endows American life with revolutionary purpose and promise. It's more than the likes of Adams himself might ever have wanted, but it happens. And I think of common sense really as, in some ways, the the first of the founding documents. It's the argument that changes a rebellion. It changes it. It turns the whole American story into a revolutionary one. And I, I just love those words. I would tell everyone, go out and make sure you have a copy. Put it bedside, as many later radicals did all the way through American history, and read it every so often. It will remind you of what it means to be an American, that to be an American... Is to be a radical. The language may seem a little archaic, a little bit, but if you read it soberly, no, don't read it soberly. What the hell? Most people read it aloud <laughs> over a beer or a brandy. You might as well do that too. You'll also feel like it's a letter from an old friend, a letter from you know more than 200 years ago, but a letter from an old friend. Intimate, but it's
1: also revolutionary. It's radical. It's also inspiring. What's our common sense moment? I mean, the last 16, 17 months, that's been nothing but a mirror seeing the working class, the poor take the brunt of all of it. COVID gave us that Lexington and Concord moment. How do we take that and use it like the Thomas Paine's of the day? How do we use this momentum to make this moment that we are in a movement like they turned that
3: rebellion into revolution? Well, let's face the reality that we have yet to find our own Thomas Paine, which is why I say to people, You've got to read common sense. You know, there's the follow up pamphlet. The rebellion did turn into a revolution. The British sent an army of 32,000 men into New York Harbor to try to destroy the revolution. And they were, they were like moments away from doing it. So it's the winter of 1776 on the verge of 1777. And Payne is with Washington's army. He he and Washington have now met up. He is now in Washington's own camp. And they're retreating from New York. They've come across to Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is where Payne and Washington have their first meeting. And the retreat across New Jersey is terrible. It's winter. Snow covered. Most of the people of New Jersey are actually Tories. And to add to the tragedy of all that is the fact that Benjamin Franklin's son is a Tory and he's the royal governor of New Jersey. One evening, Washington possibly, or one of his generals, Nathaniel Green, Washington basically says to Payne, It's time to pick up your pen again. He's already been writing reports back to Philadelphia, but now he says, We need another pamphlet. Whereas a later poet would say, The sword of Washington would have been wielded in vain if not not for the pen of pain, something like that. So pain sits by the campfire and he begins to write on a drumhead the new pamphlet. And some people even imagine he's getting words from the soldiers who are surrounding him. Pain may or may not have had to, but you can imagine the imagery, the fire, the cold and Payne's First line will become one of the most famous lines in American history. Every single coach who is losing at halftime, regardless of the sport, has probably at some point said this to his men or women, his boys (laughs) or girls. These are the times that try men's souls. And he goes on, he says, by the end of this first paragraph of the crisis papers, he says, but the more trying the struggle, the more glorious the triumph. I'm looking for my copy of, of the crisis so I can really do it right. You know what? Maybe next time we meet, I'll read that to start off our discussion. But Let me just say that Payne writes 13 of the crisis papers through the revolution. Every time Washington's troops need a morale boost, Payne is there with a new pamphlet. I got to believe the 13 is not, uh, that's not, it's not accidental. It's not accidental. In fact, he actually wrote 16, but what he, he wanted to make sure he only wrote 13. So what he did is he titled the other three without numbers, a supplementary piece, because he wanted the 13 to represent the 13 colonies and even that harvey that's solidarity that's radical that's right you bet you asked me as we close the 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 long segment you asked me you know what do we do or where's our thomas Paine? given the crises we confront the pandemic the, the devastation of a 20 years war that should have ended A long, long time ago Given the gross inequalities That have been created By 45 years of class war By capital, conservatives And neoliberals Against American working people The kinds of injustices That continue to be perpetrated Against people of color African Americans in particular And the campaigns Against women's rights The campaigns against workers' rights I mean, we do need our Thomas Paine Which is why I'm telling people Go and read Common Sense Read on in Thomas Paine's work We'll come back to it We will do another episode in a couple of weeks or more about Thomas Paine's later writings, where he literally becomes the godfather of social democracy, agrarian justice. Read those, gain inspiration, start talking to each other, not about how bad things are, but about the fact that we have it in our power, if not to change the world over again or begin the world over again, we have it in our power to make sure that we organize and we mobilize. And let me make it clear, the whole idea well, we ought to be out in the streets, undeniably, but that's not in itself organizing. Organizing requires organizing, not simply mobilizing. It requires organizing. You're in Missouri, over there in St. Louis. Cori Bush, wasn't the first time she ran to try to take that seat. She ran, yep. what, twice and won the second time around. And she's now the voice and the person who sat outside the Capitol building demanding that the Biden administration, that the Congress enable the Biden administration to extend the moratorium on evictions. I mean, that's proof that we can win. Next time, we're going to go to the declaration, I believe. To the declaration we go. Professor Harvey K, we're going to do the declaration next week? You bet. Reclaim the declaration, both from those who reject it because it was written by a slaveholder and all the more we're going to lay claim to it because conservatives read it wrongly. We're never going to ignore the exploitation and the oppression, the tragedy and the irony. But let's be clear about it. Our task is to remind ourselves why we are so anxious about America today. It's because deep down, we actually do believe in the promise of America. Our task is to make manifest that promise as something to rally around and demand action. That's what Thomas Paine would do.
0: What would Tom Paine do? To spread a little common sense. What would Tom Paine do? The problem's so immense that a shout passed mouth to mouth around the world. Protest and survive! Protest and survive! I want to be a pamphleteer in the name of Tom Paine's rights of man. But what is the name of the pamphlet in the age of laser discs and satellite time? What is the name of the pamphlet that shall soar aloft? From mind to mind, a million miles And the men of war Need the fresh young minds In the Labs of Doom We've got to interdict the flow We've got to interdict The Labs of Doom The Labs of Doom The Labs of Doom The malinformed are dragged aboard the ships of death on a dirty sea. That a shout passed mouth to mouth around the world: protest and survive. Protest and survive. and survive Protest and survive There'll be times when the struggle shall falter In a whirl of ink and stupid strife There'll be times when we're eaten by chaos And everything's a crazy maze of razor blade roads. There'll be times when we'll have to let it go and walk away to heal. Pull on the headphones, listen to Bach by the garden wall. And you don't want to sew a quilt of guilt. Lace of grace, lace of grace, lace of grace Oh, the archetypal macho man with his nuclear spears Pushes his aggression on the high frontier As if the Milky Way were just a swirl of knives We have to overcome To dance while others moan in pain But we're never gonna find any answers Until we make that simple word It's such a simple word It comes in simple parts I'm talking about pee, pee, pee Just as float down and rest on the shining scale. Shout past mouth-to-mouth around the world Protest and survive Protest and survive Sing along Protest and survive Everybody Protest and survive Around the world Protest and survive East and West Protest and survive
3: Morning Morning show. Show.